2020 changed the trajectory of my life forever. I was 24, succeeding in a job that offered huge financial reward, yet I was unhappy and unfulfilled. My chronic illness, cystic fibrosis, had caused my lungs to bleed and it left me in a hospital bed. Now I left that job and created this podcast and I left that hospital bed to run marathons and prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we respond to them. On this show, we discuss the adversity that my guests and I face and how we overcome that adversity. This is a lot to talk about. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. But of course, you can call me Brad. Very excited to be here today with one of Australia's best keynote speakers, a keynote speaker who has shared her story around the world. And she's here today to share her story with all of us, which is an incredible privilege. She's an author. She's a former professional athlete. She's a storyteller in the absolute highest regard. I'm so excited for her story to be here with us today and to hear it. And she's just a great human being. When you hear her attitude towards life, her mindset, the human being she is, but not only who she is, how she shows up in the world, it gives you a really good sense of the kind of things that we can learn from her here today. And I'm very excited to do just that. So from your home, your car, or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the one, the only, Kath Koshal. How are you, Kath? <laughs> I'm good, Brad. How are you? Very good. Very happy to be here. We just sort of riffed a little bit off record then and, and had a little bit of a chat and a get to know each other. And I can just sense already that you're the kind of human being that I gravitate towards. You're just very authentic. You are you and you're very present. You're very present in what's happening, which I love. So how are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's um it's a bit of a shock to to the system being in the winter months. I'm normally sort of chasing the summer wherever I am, but um dialing in from Sydney's beautiful northern beaches and no complaints this end. I'm having a day at home uh, before an event tonight, which will be great. Um, and just really stoked to be to be meeting you first and foremost because I've heard so many wonderful things. But just to be a guest on this party too, I I really appreciate that. That means a lot. Talk to me about what your life consists of at the moment, because I guess, you know, we sort of laughed about it pre-chat. The idea of being a professional speaker okay. kind of looks and sounds different to everyone. And it's, it's such a weird thing for somebody to hear and to ask about because you kind of don't know what to expect. And I guess that answer changes with every speaker, depending on the kind of gigs they're doing, what sort of stories or content they're sharing. So give us a little bit of an insight into what you're talking about, and then we'll go really into your story. Yeah, as we sort of giggled about earlier, um, I'm, I've never really been comfortable with the title of speaker or motivational speaker or whatever it is that I'm labelled now, but uh, a very accidental professional speaker, I guess, um, in that I never set out to sort of feature on speaking circuits around the world or anything like that. And really um, have never had any kind of formal training either, um, which shocks and surprises a lot of people. So I'm not a technically gifted speaker. Um, I just tell my story and show up with my authentic self and, and share it in a way that I feel comfortable with. Um, so I speak mostly to the topics of, of, you know, kindness, which relates to corporate wellbeing and culture. Um, I speak a lot about human resilience. So I do that for athletes around the world corporate workplaces, et cetera, schools. Um, 
And then also, you know, overcoming adversity and other sort of topical things like that as well. So around the areas of cultural well-being, resilience building, et cetera, mental health. Um, and I guess I still, as I sort of mentioned, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the title. And if someone asked me what I did for a living, I normally have a couple of different answers. One being, you know, I'm the founder of a charity. It's called Kindness Factory. Um, so when I'm not speaking, I'm spending time helping my team develop the resources that it pushes out into schools around the world, um, corporate wellbeing packages, so consulting and all those sorts of things. But yeah, I guess my day job and the thing that I'm more widely known for is just keynoting um, around the world as well. So um, it's an interesting career. I pivoted from a full-time job in sports administration in 2017. I sort of dipped my toe into the water after living a pretty unique life. Um, that led to people being curious and wanting me to share um, my story on stages and in forums and things like that. And slowly have built that up to sort of do two or three a week um, at the moment. And it's all around the world. So um, I guess it, it sort of proves the point that you don't have to do what you thought you were always going to do. And sometimes if you let life be, um, it can surprise you. So um, yeah, it's an interesting job. It's an interesting title. Um, and, and it's one that I've actually, I guess, the industry and, and the world of speaking or, or keynoting is something that I've actually fallen in love with um, as well. So I don't think I ever used to be comfortable with the idea of just sharing my story um, until I realised the impact it started having on, on audiences and being able to deliver impact and purpose. Um, and so I love that now. I love being able to sort of see the light bulb go on for people right in front of my eyes. It's a real tangible way to see change in front of um, in front of yourself, which is amazing. So it's a it's a privilege I don't take lightly, um, and one that I've grown to love as well. I, I love hearing that, Kath. And you know, you mentioned there those themes or those topics of like kindness, resilience, overcoming adversity. I truly believe that you don't get to speak about those things until you've experienced what they've done for you in your life. And it's, that's you being able to speak about the impact that's had on you. And, and like you said, then seeing that light bulb go off in the audience of that genuine emotion reaction to know that that's something they're resonating with too. And something very beautiful and human about that, the way that we learn off each other when we learn off each other's stories. Let's get some context now around your story, because those themes aren't themes that like we said, you just sit down in front of a textbook and take some notes on, you know, they're lived, they're lived experiences that teach you lessons. So tell us about your lived experience. What got you to this point? I know maybe we start the journey somewhere around you being a professional athlete, a, a former professional cricket player, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was many lifetimes ago, it feels like. So um, I'm one of four kids. I've got three older brothers um, and I'm the youngest. So youngest and only girl. Um, and when I was growing up, I loved playing cricket in the backyard with my brothers. It was sort of a way that um, I felt like I belonged to their little tribe that they had. Um, and I just loved chasing the ball around the backyard or the park with them. And um, very early days, I guess, non-traditional female sport. Um, you know, it's a male-dominated sport, cricket. But because of my brother's influence, I chased the dream of wanting to play cricket professionally very early on. Um, and thankfully for me, I, I sort of reached that pinnacle. I got to play for New South Wales for a few seasons, um, only debuted um, in 2011. So I was about 23 at that point in time, um, contracted for a couple of years, had played overseas in Middlesex for a couple of years as well. Uh, sorry, that's in London. Um, so sort of was doing that for four summers um, professionally. 
four games into my professional career um, for New South Wales, though, I actually very quickly and, and very suddenly and accidentally broke my back um, playing cricket. So um, it really came out of the blue in some ways. Um, I had an ongoing kind of discal issue in my lower spine, um, which we knew about because I was experiencing some pain. Um, but we had no idea that there was any risk associated with the back breaking as suddenly and quickly as that. So um, I guess I was sort of, you know, airlifted from the cricket field uh, to the hospital, um, had five unsuccessful surgeries. And, and not only is this dream that I'd had since I was a little girl vanished straight in front of my eyes, um, but they sort of told me it was life in a wheelchair. I was a paraplegic and, and I'd never walk again. Um, so, you know, how do you go from the reaching the pinnacle, the thing that you'd only ever wanted to do? And, and for me, um, I think back then, I've always been a pretty decent person. Um, my family from the bush, we've got country upbringings, great values as a family. Um, and, and one thing that as my story progresses, you'll learn about the trauma and the, the, the adversities that I've, I've endured since that moment. But one thing I've never lacked is support. I've always had an incredible family and my friends are amazing. None of them have ever given up on me when they probably had every right to when I wasn't doing things the way it should have been done and, and things like that. And, you know, I kept, I guess, at the age of 23, I'd centered my identity around being able to hit a ball around a park. And I think a lot of athletes struggle with this post-retirement um, is with their identity. So, as you're growing up as certainly an Aussie kid who, you know, we idolize sport in this country. Um, if I'm a good cricket player, um, I'm known as Kath, the good cricket player. So any kind of party I go to as a 15, 16 year old and I get there, um, it's, oh, Kath's here, she's the really good cricket player. And that's what mm. I'm now reinforcing to myself. Oh, the only thing that's really interesting about me is that I'm good at playing cricket. And so that, you know, I'm telling myself that and others are telling me that through their words and actions and things like that. And as I'm introduced more as an adult, oh, this is the gun cricket player, et cetera, you start to learn that that's what your identity is centered around. So to have that immediately taken away as quickly as it was for me, it kind of brings in the mental torment of, of everything as well. well. Who am I? And if I don't have cricket with me, forget cricket, I'm now told I can't even walk. It, it, am I even me? Like what, what makes me interesting now? Can I contribute to the world? Um, how am I going to rebuild here and all those sorts of things? So it was a, it was a very, you know, stark moment of um, a lot of confusion, which I think in the initial stages of my kind of injury was almost, um, it was negated by the, I guess the the fear that comes in when you're like told you have to have another surgery because the first one was unsuccessful and so was the second one and so was the third one. And so you're almost getting this autopilot of surgery, recovery, surgery, recovery, and you're kind of just trying to keep your head above water there for a bit. Um, and for me, um, back then, there was one tiny slither of hope and it was by way of a, a new age technique in spinal surgeries back then. Uh, called total disc replacements. Um, and in 2011, there was one surgeon doing that kind of surgery and he was based out of the Gold Coast. So I qualified for that surgery. Um, and the difference between that surgery and most is that rather than cutting through your back and the tissue there, which you'd imagine with a spinal cord injury like mine, um, you actually cut through the stomach and you shift your vital organs aside and all that kind of stuff. And um, 
they line the, ver the vertebrae with titanium reinforcement and put like a ball and socket joint in there. And the idea is that you get a whole lot more mobility. Um, and that was sort of sold to me as it's you're probably your best possible chance of ever feeling your legs again and walking. Um, and so I took that chance and went to the Gold Coast and had the surgery and it was deemed a success, which was great. Um, I spent six weeks there on the Gold Coast recovering and then they said I was medically cleared well enough to be able to fly back home to Sydney and be around my my networks again, my family, my friends, all those sorts of things and and to continue the rehab process from, from, from there. So did that. A post-surgical complication saw me come within a couple of hours of having my leg amputated, um, as in three hours. It was saved very yeah. last minute. Um, and then after that, it was, it was you know, like this is pretty dire. Um, in order to keep you as healthy as possible, we think you need to go to rehab. So six to 12 months, um, no guarantee you're walking at the end of it, but that's where we think you need to go. So um, went to rehab again. Oh, sorry, went to rehab Um Pretty difficult challenge for me um, in that, I guess, you know, there's a, the physical recovery element to it, but I also felt like rehabs are just a very stale environment for a 23-year-old who'd built their entire identity around being physically fit and active and all those sorts of things to then have the complete opposite, a very sedentary and sterile environment. Um, it was a pretty, it was, it was a pretty rough one for me. So um, struggled a lot in rehab, certainly mentally for the first couple of weeks, especially, um, when I'm in that new environment. Um, but for me, thankfully my luck changed when I met a, a fellow patient, um, who had injured his spine, um, in the tough mudder, mudder obstacle race. So, um, on the monkey bar challenge, someone had gone too early and pushed into his back and, um, he fell very awkwardly and fractured part of his spine. And um, I sort of, you know, when he got there, we were very similar age, very similar mindset. Um, he was also an athlete. So we had a very similar background and a very similar challenge in front of ourselves of teaching ourselves how to walk again. So we started off as friends and um, and very quickly and much to my surprise, we, we fell in love, um, which is pretty amazing um, to say, you know, he finds love in a rehab center. Um, and for me as a 23-year-old, I'd always prioritised my sport and being an athlete and eating and training and sleeping and all that kind of stuff. And I'd had little, you know, high school crushes and things like that, but never sort of a, a boyfriend uh, by any stretch. And so um, to have found love in the most unlikely of circumstances um, in a rehab environment when you're at your rock bottom at that moment um, is pretty unique. And um, I guess what made our time bearable um, for Jim and I was was dreaming of a life that would exist once we we finished rehab. So what's the the carrot that we can almost like dangle in front of ourselves um, so that we get through this process and we can look back on this as you know the place that we met and found love um, but be proud of our achievements in in learning how to walk again and all that kind of stuff so that we can set ourselves up for the future. And we had to dream. Um, you mentioned that you're a dreamer, so am I. Ever since I was a little kid, um, I had, you know, I've just, I was always in space land, just dreaming of what my life would look like and all those sorts of things. And and for Jim and I, our dreams are pretty special and, and they really and truly got us through rehab. It'd be, you know, we wanted four kids, um, three boys and a girl, just like my family, um, house in Gold Coast on Broadwater, pet turtles, dogs, you name it, we kind of dreamt it. Um which again, just made that time so much more bearable when you think of the grind of rehab. Um, and we'd been dating for 12 months. 
when um, I was sort of now considered an outpatient, which I was walking independently, um, it just meant that I visited rehab three mornings a week and then I could go to work or home and, and kind of almost transition back into to normal life. And Jim had a day to go before he was to be considered an outpatient. Um, we'd put the lease on the house together in the Gold Coast and the dreams that we were dreaming were about to come true the very next day when um, very tragically and suddenly uh, and very inexplicit, inexplicitly uh, Jim passed away via suicide that night, which um, yeah. as you can imagine, yeah, just just left me at, I was 24 at that point um, and it just left me so crushed. I I kind of felt like I had I'd lost all sense of self. Um, mm. you know, how do you go through these big life hurdles and what what they mean to you and at 24 you feel so adult um and I truly felt like I had to have it all all of the answers I had to have it all figured out and grief at the best of times is so difficult um adding the complexity of suicide and we should never compare grief um but for me it was so torturous and um I remember 10 months after Jim's passing just hitting that rock bottom um in the you know first I lose this dream that I'd had since I was a little girl of playing cricket and and then I lost the person that taught me there was so much more to life than, than hitting a ball around a park. And um, my rock bottom was pretty ugly. Um, it was a complete mental breakdown. Um, I lost all sense of self. Um, I genuinely never thought I'd be happy again. You know, forget happiness. I never thought that you'd ever, I just thought no one would ever see me smile again. Um, life just didn't seem to make sense without him in it anymore. Um, and that's the only way that I could kind of describe it. And I think it was JK Rowling said it best. Um, the one good thing about rock bottom is understanding the realization that there's only one way to go. So when you're at rock bottom, you, you, you genuinely can't get any lower. You have to go up. And I think I found a tiny slither of hope in that notion. Um, and I think we, we often talk about positivity as, you know, toxic and all those sorts of things. And for me, I think the way that I would define it, and this is what I had to hold on to in that rock bottom moment is that, Things not, not, might not be great today or tomorrow or in a week or even a year, uh, but I believe that one day they will get better. Um, and that truly, I found that perspective through the power of gratitude, which links into kindness in some ways, and I'll get into that a bit later. But I remember at my rock bottom moment, I ended up getting to the Gold Coast and reconnecting with some loved ones there. And I was sat down at a coffee table and on the coffee table was a piece of paper and a pen I'm pretty sure it was there for a shopping list or something like that. And I don't know why, but I had this moment of reflection where I was like, you know what? If nothing else, yes, I've been through a lot, but I've always had people that have shown up for me. That's As I said at the start of this, there's one thing that you will not hear me say, and that is that I've had a lack of support. Like I've had the world's best doctors, physios, psychologists. My family and friends are so amazing and they will never, ever give up on me. And for whatever reason, this moment of gratitude, these faces and names kept popping into my head of people who had always shown up for me and never given up on me and helped me. And I just picked up the pen and I started writing down a list of their names. So it was, you know, doctors, physios, mum, dad, family, brothers, friends, etc. And one, one person turned into 10. Next thing is about 30 names on this bit of paper. And I remember holding that bit of paper in front of my face at this rock bottom moment. And I just said to myself, if nothing else, this is 30 reasons to keep going. And then I just, and then I picked up my phone and I just called every single person on that list just to say thanks. So it was, Hey, it's me. 
say my name flashed up. Oh my God, I'm worried sick. And I said, yeah, no, I'm really sorry about that. I just need to say thanks. I'm going to be okay. I don't know how that or what that looks like, but I will be. And I just want to say thanks for being in my life. And it was truly one of the most profound moments of my life. Like still, it wasn't like I, it was transformational, but not in the way that you would think. Um, it wasn't like I swallowed this magical pill and my life was amazing. Far from it. I had a lot of work to do. I ended up then going on to seek psychological support, had two years of pretty intense therapy to get over my trauma and all those sorts of things. But for whatever reason in connecting with those people and expressing that gratitude and, and finding that gratitude for them, um, it was this turning point where I said, you know what, again, if nothing else is 30 reasons to keep going, but if I surround myself with the right people, we have to like, and I, I believe this for everyone, like we can't do things alone in life. We, we're just not designed to do that. We have to connect with others and they're vital to thriving and surviving in, in my opinion, even in COVID sort of, we, we saw firsthand what human connection and lack thereof can do to us from an esteem and mental health perspective. And I thought, you know what, I'm just lucky to have these people in my life. If nothing else, that's it. Um, and that's how I rebuilt my life. It was the foundation of gratitude. But then also a realization that kindness had played the biggest role in getting to in, in getting me to overcome all of these adversities. And, you know, a, a beautiful articulation of that is, you know, when you're in a wheelchair like I have been and you can't reach a lift button and a random stranger walks past and they see that struggle that you can't reach it and they press that button for you. And it means nothing to their day, but everything to yours because you get downstairs and do what you need to do next. Those moments are so powerful. And I think when we understand that at an individual and community level, we are truly powerful. So imagine this sort of scenario, understanding this, I guess, every single interaction that we have with another, so the one that we're having right now, we're complete strangers prior to this, or the person who makes you coffee tomorrow, or the next person that you walk by on the street that you don't know. Imagine every understanding this notion, every single interaction that we hold with another person has an incredible opportunity to lift someone up through a high five, a hug, um, a compliment, saying good day, smiling, whatever it is, or it could have a completely detrimental impact by name calling, shouting abuse, um, ignoring someone, etc. And I think when we understand that choice as a human being, um, that's a truly wonderful thing, and it's a pretty easy choice, right? What am I choosing to do in this moment to smile at them or to be grumpy at them? Um, and I think for me, I just recognized that kindness had played amongst gratitude and perspective and all those other things had played a very big role in me being the person that I was and, and me recovering to that point as well. Um, so after that sort of come home and I got a job in full-time sport and life was pretty great. And I started what's now known as the kindness factory, which is a registered charity in three countries. And it promotes acts of kindness around the world. We've logged nearly 6 million acts of kindness since that moment. And we have a kindness curriculum in three countries as well, which teaches the basic principles of kindness. Um, and that was really great. I was sort of doing really good. Um, still felt a little bit lost and had a long way to go psychologically. And physically, I'd sort of taught myself how to walk again. And really, I guess I'm just someone who needs to be you know, have a task in mind or training for something or whatever it may be. So I can't feel my left leg. Uh, it's a disability I lived with since my my first back injury, but I decided to get into triathlon. Um, my doctor sort of said, you know, you're a good swimmer, your recovery is based on a bike and in a run, you could be a good triathlete. Why don't you give that a go? So I got into that and um, I was doing really, really well. 
Um, I was the first person with my disability to do a half Ironman. Um, and then I qualified for a full Ironman. So a 3.8K swim, 180K bike ride and a full marathon at the end. And training was on track for that four months out from the event. And with my best mate, Erin, uh, I was on a training bike ride. And we're going from the south of Sydney in Cronulla to the north of Sydney in, the, in Manly, so the northern beaches. Um, and we nearly got to the halfway mark when I was hit by a, a drunk driver from behind and broke my back again. Um, <laughs> You're taking me on a roller coaster of emotions here, Kath. Far yeah. yeah, so broke my back in four places, uh, shattered my hip, broke my wrist, dislocated my neck and woke up from a coma to the news that I was paralysed and told I wouldn't walk again for the second time in my life. Um so who do you turn to and what do you do? And, you know, when you see yourself starting to slide down towards that rock bottom moment, um, how do you stop yourself? Like, so I had to keep thinking, well, what did I learn the first time? You know, I guess the, and, and I don't need to tell you this, um, sometimes when we go through adversity, as tough as it is in the moment, it's actually sometimes the most insightful moments that we can have as a person, because we start to explore parts of ourselves that others who haven't had to endure those moments might have to so what makes us tick what, what what works when we're starting to dig ourselves a hole how do we get out of it how do we not even get into it in the first place to protect ourselves and things like that and as I woke up from that coma I remember not having to look too far for perspective at the end of my bed with my parents and I just saw the look on their face for what it must have felt like to see their daughter in the position that she was again um, and I thought you know what if if nothing else I'm the lucky one here I'm not them having to watch me go through this and I just kept breathing for them. And then, um, you know, I was in ICU for six weeks, onto the wards for six weeks, and then rehab for six months to teach myself how to walk again. Um, and it was tough. There's, there's, I'm not going to lie, I was sugarcoated or anything like that. It was a very tough experience. But um, one that led to me probably now being in the happiest state of mind that I've ever been in. I've got a, an incredible life that I love. But um, I ended up going, I guess I recognized through suffering in the first two instances, the loss of my partner, Jim, and, and also breaking my back once before that, um, that there were little ingredients that had worked for me. So things like gratitude, which I spoke about earlier, kindness, of course, perspective, humor, and a couple of other things that had really worked for me. So I just kept thinking to myself, well, what pulled me out of the hole the first time? Because I might need to tap into that again. And um, I guess I realized that kindness was the the most powerful catalyst that I had to overcome uh, that experience. And I ended up um, going on a bit of a journey. It was a bit of an adventure that I've now written a book about. Um, and I, I left my home with nothing but the clothes on my back. So no cash, credit card, food or water. And I put on social media that I couldn't help uh, accept help off family or friends. So I had to survive on the kindness of strangers um, that was kind of the, the premise of the entire journey. And uh, I ended up reaching news stations all around the world. And I had 10,000 people reach out to help me, to get me from A to B, to feed me, to put me up in their house. Um, yeah, just to, to, to help in some way. And I traveled for two months to every single state in Australia. Um, and I learned more about myself in that two months. And we talk about storytelling. Um, every single person that I met who helped me on that journey had a story that would break your heart. Um, so all these people sort of had endured and, and wanted to give back in some way and help me. And it was um, it was a beautiful, I mean, there were so many beautiful moments throughout that journey, which most of which are captured in the book that I wrote about it. But um, I ended up sort of reaching that two-month mark going, I, I feel quite fulfilled now. I think my bucket's 
filled again or full again. Um, it's probably on me now to give back some of that kindness again and and to promote kindness as a message as far and wide as possible. So to commit myself to the movement of Kindness Factory and to grow that as a charity. And that's when I sort of got into speaking, actually. Um, you know, on that trip, I was, you know, schools would reach out and say, we'll give you free lunch if you come in and talk to the students about what you're doing. And same for corporate organisations and things like that. Um, and that's really how I fell into the groove of that. And when the journey stopped, I just had offers from all around the world. Can you come and share your story with us? And um, we'd love to hear firsthand the account of the people that you met and, and your story and, and all that kind of thing. So um, that's, a, that's me in a nutshell. There's a bit more to the story and I'm sure there's little intricacies that you might want to ask and things like that. But um, that's the context of, of sort of how and, and why I became or, or do what I do, I guess. Well, thank you so much, firstly, for sharing that, because let me tell you, if we were face to face in studio, you would have got the biggest hug in the middle of that because <laughs> I don't think that, you know, it's to see you speak about it now, obviously what you do is you share your story. So there's a level of understanding of how you hold and control that emotion as you share it now, because you've been sharing it so often, but the ups and downs of your story are insane. Like to go from the lowest of lows, or like you said, your rock bottom to the highest of highs where you're surviving off the kindness of strangers is, is such a contrast. And I think that's what makes this story so beautiful and so powerful to hear. And, you know, you took me from smiles on my face to tears in my eyes and, and it means the world that you shared that the way you did. And, you know, hence why I wanted you to just go on and, and give us some real context there. And there's so many things that stood out to me there. The one thing that I'll go to immediately is, you know, you spoke there about the the kindness of strangers and how all of these strangers had their own stories, their own heartbreaking stories to tell. And that is likely why they were showing up for you in your moment, in your moment of need. Is it, is it pretty true to say that it seems as though the things that really hurt us, challenge us, you know, come to us in form of adversity or of an obstacle to overcome are the things that make us the human being that can then have impact in the world? Is that been a clear realisation for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a common thread that I, I mean, even yesterday we had a volunteer reach out. Um, someone had read my book, um, an intensive care doctor actually, um, and she reached out to say, hey, I'd love to get this into my child's preschool. Could we have a catch up? And we ended up taking a call with the general manager of Kindness Factory. And she shared with us that her husband had passed away very quickly, um, very um, abruptly. It was a heart attack 12 months ago. And I said, wow, um, that's really interesting. I said, what's that made you realize? And she said, well, he was the kindest person I've ever known. So when I saw your book in the library, I picked it up. I knew it would resonate. I read it and I couldn't agree more with what you were saying. And I actually asked her that question. You know, do you think that our adversities and sometimes when we have that perspective of greater life, does that often take us back to what's really important in life? And is that why when people are suffering or going through adversity that they often turn to or come out of it on the other side, wanting to be kinder? But on the flip side to that, I don't think that we can negate, you know, a common thing that I get sort of told, you know, Kath, trauma, grief and, and loss doesn't equal kindness. What are you doing? And I just argue with that so much um, because there's so much opportunity when when we're in adversity to find kindness for ourselves and from others as well. And I think it's vitally important. Um, but it is a common thing to see people who have, have suffered in some way have that understanding of, 
why empathy is required and then often a need to want to help someone when they see them struggling which I think is such a beautiful thing about life um it really is and actually another like a caveat to this kind of rule as well is because I don't want to preclude anyone who hasn't been through a huge life adversity because there's no there's never any point in comparing adversity um you know and I'm sure you get this a lot as well where people go you know I haven't gone through anything close to what you have however this really hurt me and I'm like don't say that because your adversity is just as relative to mine it really depends Mm. on where we're at on, on a scale and at any given time really but Uh, One of our advisory board members, he reached out after seeing me speak. He's an executive. I won't name him because I haven't asked permission, but he's an executive at a big company. And I went and spoke in that corporate organization. He reached out separately to say, I'd love to have a coffee. Would that be okay? And I said, of course. And he said, look, I'd just really love to become involved in some way. Is there any way that I could, you could utilize my skills and completely voluntary, et cetera. And I said, "Um, yeah, of course, let me have a think about it. I'll discuss it with our board. And so do you mind me asking though, like what has what sort of prompted you to do this? And he said, well, Kath, what I realized through listening to your story, and normally it's, you know, I took this from it or this or whatever, and it's something about the adversity that resonated with them because that's gone through something similar. He said, what I realized in listening to it is that I've lived a very privileged life. I've not really ever gone through any significant adversity whatsoever. I've got great parents. My family are amazing um I've got two beautiful healthy boys they're great um my wife and I are in a really strong position etc and I guess what I realized was you don't have to wait to go through these big things to be able to contribute to the world and and I found that so refreshing because it's so often that you get people who have this defining moment in life where they feel like it's given them a second chance to be able to be the person that always wanted to be and they choose kindness or they which is fantastic and so wonderful. But on the flip side to that, we don't have to wait to suffer adversity or to endure adversity to contribute to the world. Um, but yeah, I think there is a deeper level of understanding when when someone has gone through a big adversity um, and they connect, connect with others. And I think, like you said, we're both big fans of storytelling. Um, when we share our stories, it almost gives people who are listening an opportunity or permission to share back in some way. So I think that journey was me going, here's me unapologetically sharing my life struggles. And I'm at, I'm starting to feel like I'm reaching rock bottom again. Can anyone help me? And people were, yeah, I can. Here's a meal, but I'm also going to share my learnings from my adversity too. And I wanted you to know this because it helped me because someone helped me and all those sorts of things. So I don't know. It's a, I've probably answered that question in a multitude of different ways, but um, there's something so beautiful about human connection in suffering as well. Now you've answered it incredibly and I, I'm so glad that you went there and, and shared that point because it's such a great point. You are right that often when you get off stage, you have someone come up and say, I can't imagine what you've experienced. I've not experienced anything like it. And it's often that people are comparing their context to yours and you're right. You should never compare context because what happens in our life is visceral for us because of who we are and what we've experienced and whether that's something so simple as a break in relationship or it's a, you know, the loss of a job or the fact that, you know, mentally you're just not in a great place right now. That for you is your experience and you shouldn't undervalue or undermine that. And, you know, I I think about kindness, this idea, and we talk a lot about, I guess we talk a a lot about in the world about how we can show up and be kind for others, how we can um, use kindness to, encourage and impact other people that we come into contact with 
It just made me think there that as I think about the real challenges in my own life, as I'm sure you reflect on yours, I think the reason that the lessons from those really challenging moments have been so profound for me is because when you're in that place and nothing has gone right for you and it's put you in a place where you're at your rock bottom or at a real crisis point, you get very present with what you're experiencing. And I think often we're probably in life so distracted and so busy that we're not, not often present about the little acts of kindness that happen to us every day. Yeah. And sometimes it's hearing a story like yours or hearing someone's incredible story, wherever you are, at whatever stage of your life that stops you and you get really present and you start to think about what's happening to me every day that's really kind or is really having an impact on my soul or that next hour of my life. And I guess if we get more present, we can see those acts of kindness play out in front of our eyes. And Absolutely. that then in turn makes us want to be kinder. Yeah, I mean, kindness inspires kindness. There's science and, and evidence that proves that. And there's a fun fact about gratitude that I love that I think really links to, to kindness as well. I think those two concepts go quite hand in hand nicely. Um, they, say, they say it's impossibly stressed and, and grateful at the same time. So our brain, when in stress response, we're not absorbing information. We're not intellectual. We're not having intellectual conversations. When we're calm, however, we can absorb information. We can have better conversations better decision-making and all those sorts of things. Like you'll often see a grumpy person who's stressed make really snappy judgments or do whatever. When we're in, we can't be in a stressed state while we're being in a, a, a gratitude state. So we can't be grateful and stressed at the same time. Our brain simply won't allow us to do it. And one thing about gratitude that I love is, um, I think it's science says if we write down three things we're grateful for for 21 days in a row, it actually rewires our brain. So we become more resilient, our well-being increases, obviously our stress decreases, um, and we're much more open um, to safety, to um, communication, to lots of different things, to learning, to growing, et cetera. Um, and I think the other part about it is that when we do that and all those things go up and increase the you know, well-being, the resilience factors and protective mechanisms and things like that, the other thing is that we actually scan our environment for more gratitude. So if today, for whatever reason, I'm at my rock bottom and the only th three things that I can find to be grateful for are I've got a pair of lungs, the air is free and I have the ability to breathe. That's me at rock bottom, right? I really truly can't find much else that I'm grateful for because I've just been rocked. Um, tomorrow, I might be grateful that I got to pat my dog. Um, I told someone I loved them and I got my favorite coffee. Um, the next day, I'm probably going to find five things. The next day, I'm going to be scanning my environment. What else can I write down today that I'm grateful for, which is a pretty self-fulfilling cycle, right? It's a good way to be grateful. And I think the same can be said for kindness. Um, and, you know, early days with Kindness Factory, certainly in a country like Australia, which I love, I'm a very proud Aussie, but, you know, tall puppy syndrome pops up a lot for us. And it's like, you know, is it true kindness if we're sharing it on social media or we're telling others about it? Um, I still think it is. We don't have to do it in a grandiose way. It can be very subtle. But I'd also argue that kindness inspires kindness. So when we see it in action or when we're giving or receiving kindness, we want to be kind even more than that. And it has a ripple effect. Um, or if you witness it over there in a cafe, you're like, that was quite a cool moment that I just witnessed. I mm. might do something for the next person that I see or whatever that looks like. And it can, of course, be reactive as well. I remember even the other day, um, 
uh, my partner and I were going for a walk and we're both listening to podcasts. So we had headphones in and we often do that, just walk side by side and listen to our own thing. And he'd stopped to chat to a mate and I sort of kept going because we knew where we were going to meet at the beach and all those sorts of things. And I was on one of those zebra crossings and I had, I was in my own little world, listened to a podcast, et cetera. And there was a funny moment in the podcast and I started kind of, I wasn't laughing, but I had a huge smile on my face and an old lady was walking towards me. So I was sort of crossing on this zebra crossing and um, thankfully there were no cars waiting, but she sort of, you know, gently t- uh, grabbed my arm and she said, excuse me. And I sort of took my, my airport out and I said, yes, is everything okay? And she said, it's so nice to see you smile you don't often see people smiling like that on the street and of course it made me smile bigger and I said thank you so much for letting me know and she's like what are you and I said I'm just listening to a podcast there's a really funny moment on it but I really appreciate you stopping to say that I reckon I told my first thing that happened is my partner come over you never guess what just happened to me this woman just stopped me and did this I reckon I was talking about that for the rest of the night (laughs) the one thing that like she just took two seconds to tell me that she enjoyed my smile and I think it's just little moments like that that and old people are great at doing that because they haven't been brought up with the, the technological and the, the technology that we have as the younger gen um, with phones and things that distract us and all that kind of stuff. So old people are really great at staying in the moment um, and they can probably practice that a bit better than, and that's something that we could all learn from the older gen, I reckon, um, is staying a bit more present. But it was such a beautiful moment that honestly, I'm still talking about it. It was two weeks ago and I'm on a podcast talking about it. You know what I mean? So we never really know, yeah, the impact that things like that, those small little moments are going to have on another person. It's so true. It's so true. Talk to me about, you know, obviously your story is traumatic and I can imagine that recounting it as you would do so often on stage brings up a lot of the emotion again and makes you think really deeply about what you've experienced do you find that for you like is there is there real power in being able to go back to those moments and draw from them is it more so that you're sharing it to help others now well how often do you go back and you look for that undeniable proof in your story when you're experiencing adversity because it's kind of like a bit of a myth that people think that Oh, well, once you've been through what Kath's been through, there's nothing hard ahead of you. Like you've experienced it all already. <laughs> so like life's going to be cruisy from here on out, which you and I both know is not the case. No. So, you know, how often do you go back and use that to draw inspiration for yourself? Um, yeah. And again, I'm, uh, it's a probably a myth like that, that all speakers are introvert, uh, extroverted. I'm, you know, cause we're on stages and sharing thoughts and and opinions and all those sorts of things I'm actually an introvert so which surprises a lot of people because of my lifestyle um but I'll often do a talk and certainly early days I struggled a lot um to have to go back to the times that I was talking about um and it would almost feel like people felt like they had been robbed if I didn't share all of my experiences and things like that which I used to struggle with a lot um and I think I've built up enough um protective factors through you know using a professional psychologist and things like that emotionally to be able to figure that out and navigate that um why I do what I do and and share the things that I do unapologetically but in a very respectful way um I liken it to this analogy I think this day and age um you know with a job like I have which is say separate to my speaking career it's very much behind a computer and I'm, I'm helping a charity and I'm, I'm doing business things and all that kind of stuff. And it's not very often that you can track your progress and see it visually. 
and I'm probably a visual learner. Um, and a great analogy I had is during COVID, uh, one of my best friends actually moved house and it was within my 5K radius. And it was very old and dilapidated and the backyard was just a mess. And she said to me, um, hey, would you mind, we're, we're doing a bit of a, a gardening working bee. Would you like to come and help? And I said, yeah, I would love that. That would be great. Like to get my hands dirty and do all that kind of stuff. And um, I got there and she said, oh, well, you can just mind the kids. Well, and I was like, no, 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 I'm getting in the backyard. I, I love the kids, but I'd love to get in the backyard too. And um, so we got, got to work, right? And we got these photos of what the backyard looked like at the start. And two solid days wasn't by any stretch complete, but at the end of those two days, the Saturday and the Sunday that we spent working, like sweating, like blood, sweat, tears, all that kind of stuff in this backyard, you could see progress. And I can't tell you how rewarding that felt to go, I've just like contributed to this thing and I've seen the progress right in front of my eyes. And I think with the technology that we often work with now and the jobs that we have, which if you're not a tradie, it's kind of behind a screen and all that kind of stuff. It's very rare that you get to see that impact right in front mm. of your eyes. And I realized then that speaking had become that for me in that if I just spend a day on a laptop progressing a project or something like that, I'm not going to get that that reward that I got, like that feeling of the, in the being in the backyard. Whereas speaking, um, we spoke about, you see the light bulb go off in people or you get the the standing ovation, not in an ego way, just in a way that they respect what you're saying enough to, you know, race to their feet, for example, or you get the interaction with the crowd where they come up and say what it meant to them and what they took from it and how they're going to change and, and why they value kindness more now and all those sorts of things as well. And so for that, it became a very rewarding tool for me where I didn't then leave audiences feeling drained. I felt like I was actually contributing to the world through my own story um, which my story used to own me until I went through the processing journey with my psych, um, who's just incredible and changed my life. But my story owned me because I didn't know how to articulate my experiences. And now that I tell my story in a really empowering way and in a way that makes sense to me and that feels respectful to me, um, and that's now become a gift to others to learn from so that they don't have to suffer the things that I did to, to take the messages that I've learned, that's a pretty powerful thing to, to live with, I think. And so that kind of outweighs the emotional impact that it can tend to have on me, um, you know, around adversities for Jim's passing, for example. Um, it actually coincides with World Kindness Day, which is a day that my organisation celebrates. And so around that time every year, I start to dip into a bit of sadness. And um, it can be quite a confusing time because my company's quite large and um, busy and and doing lots of different things. And I'm sort of there grappling with my own head. And um, it can be difficult around times and, and moments like that, um, for sure. But again, I think the impact um, far outweighs the emotional toll that that takes on me. And um, like I said, I've, I've just got so many amazing people in my life that that protect me from a lot of that as well. And, and, that, and, and again, it's just... A, it's important to note, like, I, it's harder for me to have a bad day because I'm always talking about kindness. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm hearing from millions of people around the world who are contributing acts of kindness to our website. So telling me what they're doing. Um, so that reinforces within my brain that the world's a pretty good place and you kind of end up living in this bubble of kindness, which is great. But I'm also a human being too that has real feelings and um, like we all do. And, and I have bad days too. And, um, and that's completely normal and fine. So um, it's just knowing again that in the bad days that uh, there's going to be better days ahead for sure. Yeah, I love that. Beautifully said. I have to ask because this is on the front of my mind and 
you know, everything that I do is so attached to my purpose in life, which I kind of shared my purpose with you before we jumped on record. But for those who don't know or haven't heard me speak about it, I see my purpose in the world as uplifting and inspiring hope in others through story. Well, especially in this season of my life and where I'm at now and what I'm doing, that's a purpose I heavily identify with. However, sometimes it comes at the detriment of my own, I guess my own mental health, my own clarity, direction, because I really struggle with allowing too many people access. Sometimes I think that my kindness, my connection to purpose can be not even taken for granted is the right word, but maybe um, people can take advantage of that. And it's, you're always accessible. You're always here for other people, which leaves me with not a lot of time or not a lot of energy for myself. And I'm starting to really grapple with this idea of I can still be purpose-driven and kind while still doing the things that are really important for me personally. How have you found that relationship between being selfless and that's a big part of your work, but also being selfish enough that you've got something to give. Yeah, there's so much about you, Brad, that um, that I often think, geez, that was me five years ago, or that's me now even, and all those sorts of things. So I think there's a lot of similarities between, uh, like as in what we value in life and who we are as people and stuff like that. Um, I think selfless is being selfish um and hear me out for a second um I used to grapple first message we hear when we get on an airplane when we're traveling um is a safety one so in case of an emergency oxygen mask will fall down from the ceiling put yours on first before helping others and I'm not a mom I'd love to be a mom one day I'm an auntie though and I remember hearing that message my nephew my oldest nephew is 13 now when I was say you know eight years ago or whenever I was traveling a lot and I'd go if my nephew who I just adore um, was sat next to me he's a child he's quite you know helpless in that situation he's sitting next to me and the, the oxygen mask fall down there's no way I'm putting mine on first before helping him like there's not a chance that that would happen I dare say a lot of mums or dads or grandparents would say exactly the same thing about their own you know kids or loved ones um, but it was probably only sort of three, four years ago that um, similar things were happening to me because of the, um, I guess, the persona that I have and it's very authentic, like that I want to be a kind person. I want others to be kinder to themselves, to others, et cetera. You'd often get the, hey, Kath, can you help me out with this? And I'd be like, oh, sorry, I'm caught up in a whatever, a meeting or a, I'm traveling or whatever. I'd be like, well, that's not very kind. And you go, oh, geez, that's a bit harsh. Like I sort of got to live and I've got to do things and all that kind of stuff. And that analogy really stuck out to me because I was like, you know what, the safety message is actually right. As much as I would struggle to do that and I'd want to help my nephew first or whoever it was sitting next to me, I couldn't actually help them before I'd helped myself. And I think the same can be applied, that analogy to life. So it's actually a proven fact. We can't be kind to others unless we've been kind to ourselves. And so I'm not talking about, you know, buying a Porsche or anything like that. I'm just talking about getting the extra 10 minutes of sleep that you need or having your favorite coffee or um, having a bath or, you know, hugging your loved one, your partner, um, or doing the thing that really, you know, fills your bucket first before others, because that in itself, by being selfish, it's actually being selfless because it leaves, it leads to more kindness if we're kind to ourselves first or at the same time. 
And so I think I had to learn that the hard way just through burnout. I, I, I never used to have the word no in me. So I'd get asked to do anything. I'd be like, yep, no worries. Just send it here and I'll be on it. Like no drama at all. And now it's almost like you just got to be, it, it's important for all of us to have boundaries in personal and professional settings, I think. And for me, it's like, where can I have the biggest impact? So where my story is going to be told, um, is it going to be done in a respectful way? Although, so there's lots of things that you can do to have within those boundaries to, to sort of tick a box almost to say, well, is it going to have impact? Yes. Um, is it going to help me contribute towards paying rent this month? Yes. Cool. Because I need to look after myself and pay my bills and do all those sorts of things, just like any other functioning member of society. And it was through a sort of burnout situation just before COVID and COVID was actually um, a bit of a blessing in disguise for me because it allowed me to stop. I got very popular speaking all around the world, but I was doing way too much of it um, just because it was quite exciting and all that kind of stuff and, and just neglecting my health and um, physically and mentally. And, and COVID gave me that chance to stop and really reorder and reprioritize what I was and uh, what I was doing and, and how I was doing it. Um, and now I feel like I'm probably set up for... Um, the most success possible in and what I mean by success is not valued by money or determined by money it's determined by impact um but I'm probably the happiest and most balanced I've ever been in my life because of that as well so um it's been a a learning journey and one that we're always doing but yeah we can't be kind to others unless we've been kind to ourselves so I think putting no in the repertoire and the vocabulary is an important thing um and it's not letting people down I, you know the most important person that you shouldn't let down is yourself. So by saying, who was it? I think it was Brene Brown actually, and this is a great one to live by as well when considering any kind of offer or um, opportunity and things like that. Um, she says, choose discomfort over resentment. And what mm. that means is discomfort in saying no or feeling like you're letting someone down. Um, so I'd rather say like I get invited to do something, I don't really want to do it, but I also don't want to say no because I don't like conflict or it's a difficult conversation. But then when it comes time to do it, I'm going to be regretting it going, I don't want to do this. Like not one part of me wants to do this. Why did I say yes to it? It doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve any impact. It's not living to my purpose, et cetera. And I completely resent that person. And it probably then leads to me having not as great a relationship with that person than, than I could have rather than just up top saying, you know what, um, at the moment, I just don't have the capacity to do that. I've got to look after my own mental health or whatever that is. Tougher conversation to have up top, but such a better outcome. And I think yeah, that's, that's been brilliant. Really, yeah, it's been a really good guidepost for me as well. I love that so much. I want to go back to, you mentioned COVID being like an incredible reset for you, just to get back and get grounded with what you need personally. Mm -hmm. I think COVID you know, COVID was really challenging for some people, but for me personally, it, it was very similar experience to your own or just what you shared there where I was able to get grounded with my health again, start to prioritize my passions, my purpose, my health to fill my cup again and realize that, well, this actually needs to be a baseline of how I operate. And it's a quote that I've been sharing quite a bit lately because it's really resonated with me. And I guess to, to be fully truthful with everyone, I'm not much of a reader. I'm definitely more of a listener. So I really struggle to sit down and read a book. Like I love listening to something. It's just how I learn. And so I heard this quote from James Clear's book, um, Atomic Habits. Okay, and yep. this quote, I thought just really hit the nail on the head for how I operate as a human. It was, we rarely rise to the level of our goals, but rather fall to the level of our systems. 
And so, you know, it, it reiterated the importance of really good systems in our life and routines. And, and I think about me now, you know, on at least five or six mornings of the week, I have to go out and move and exercise early in the morning. I have to see the sun coming up in the sky. I love to jump in the ocean. I love to a, grab a coffee and, you know, be able to spend some time with some people that I love whilst doing all of those things. And if I have that, I then operate really well throughout the course of the week. But I wonder for you now, like your career is taking you from here to there. It's taking you all around the world and, and systems and routines are really hard to find when your life is like that. How have you mm -hmm. found that experience of being on a plane all the time and trying to stay grounded with what fills your car? Yeah, um, COVID did give me that chance. And, and I guess don't take this as gospel because what works for me won't work for others. We're all different. But I remember doing the amount of travel that I was and, you know, the jet lag that come with that and the time zones and the datelines and you're just constantly kind of in, in a cloud like your head. You just never feel like you're rested or anything like that. And having been an athlete, um, for my mental health, physical health is important and I think they both go hand in hand. When I'm physically well and strong, my mental health improves and my mental health's better when I'm, you know, it's like all a cyclical kind of thing. And, um, you know, I, I hadn't put on a, a mass amount of weight, but I was probably five kilo heavier than I would have liked to have been uh, prior to COVID and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just sort of made a deal with myself that during COVID I was living, I was single at the time, living in a one bedroom apartment in the Northern beaches. Um, and we didn't have it tough at all. Like you get out for your hour of exercise and I lived like by a beach and it really just wasn't tough for, I shouldn't compare, um, but it didn't feel tough. And I thought the bare minimum I can do here is 10,000 steps. And then did that for two weeks. And then I was like, okay, I'm feeling good. Cleaned up my diet a bit. And then I was starting to run again, which a lot of people are, how do you run if you've broken your back twice and you can't feel one of your legs and all that. And again, just, sort of pushed through that barrier, got back on the bike, got back in the water. Um, that became really important to me to see the water every day is really important for me. Um, I just love being around it, just really helps me. But then when I thought to myself in COVID, what's going to happen? Like the world's going to go back to operating the way that it used to. And if I want to live the life that I had started to design, which I did because I wanted to keep speaking and doing the things that I was doing, how am I going to balance this out? And running has become a, a great tool for me. So you know, we often tell ourselves excuses when we're traveling and have a busy lifestyle that you know, I don't have time to get into the gym and all those sorts of things. You've got to pack all the equipment and all that kind of stuff. For, for me, um, packing a pair of running shoes and some gym clothes, like workout gear or a singlet or whatever it is, is such an easy thing to do. Um, and the first thing that I do in any major city that I get to is I run sort of 10, 20K just to see the place. And then I feel familiar with the territory. It's ticking a box of fulfilling like my physical needs, my mental health improves as a result of that. Um, and I'm living a non-negotiable kind of system as well. So in my calendar today, I started the day at sort of 5.30. I had some meetings in the US. So that started, normally I'd be up in the gym by that hour, working out, doing whatever I needed to do. Um, but then a non-negotiable, it's in my diary. Um, my assistant looks at my diary, makes sure that my exercise is scheduled in there like any kind of meeting would be as well. Um, and for me, similar to you, like I need to be physical most days of the week. It just, I'm not myself unless I am like that. Um, I need to get set amount as, like I'm, I'm, I'm a silk. I need to get about eight hours of sleep a night. Otherwise I'm just terrible. Um, uh, love having my favorite coffee, all that kind of stuff. Got a coffee machine now. And um, there's certain things that I need to sort of tick off every day um, that allow me to be my best self. But the non-negotiables become 
you know, um, getting um, accommodation with the kitchen, for example, so I'm not having to get eat out every night and have all the different nasties that can go in, take away foods and all that kind of stuff. Um, run every second day when I'm away or go to the gym um, in between and all those sorts of things as well. And just do the bare minimum that you can do um, while you're away so that you don't lose the progress or the flow that you have if you were just sort of living in the one country and um, and living a more sedentary lifestyle. So um, yeah, it was just sort of really balancing that out and then um, prioritizing it as well, I think is the key. Like what they say, it's not that you never have enough time, it's you didn't make time for it. So again, saying no to a meeting if you have to, because your day is jam packed and you know you need to get your 20 minutes of exercise in or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think just looking yeah. after yourself in that way is really important. Yeah, for sure. I, I second that. And for me, what physical health has done for my life is just astounding. And I'd encourage it. You know, there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, I don't think I'm like that. I think we all are. I think as human beings, there's something very inbuilt within our system. That is, if you move your body physically, you get something from it mentally. And I don't even know that we can put our finger on what we get from it. You just know the feeling. You know, it's that endorphin rush. It's that, yeah. that feeling as though you've conquered something. You've done something that is, you know, almost if we use that seek discomfort idea, like seeking discomfort, building a level of discipline, owning, you know, the way that you show up in the world. There's something about physical activity that gives us that. And, you know, we said you don't have to experience extreme trauma to really understand who you are, but I don't think that should stop us from seeking some challenges. And for me, yeah. physical activity is the outlet to do that without having to put myself back in a hospital bed to a lesson. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, I agree. Like I, um, my partner's sort of, he's, he's a very fit, so does CrossFit. He's getting into a fair bit more competitive running and stuff like that at the moment. And he's done a couple of Ironmans and he keeps saying to me, um, cause I was training for an Ironman when I got hit by that drunk driver. And he's like, well, why don't you do an Ironman? You're, back to pretty good fitness now and it's like oh that sort of bus has run its race and all that kind of stuff he's like why don't you do one and I was like why don't I do one I, I, I don't know like why what is the barrier I'm placing in front of myself is it the fact that I've got a lot of travel coming up and I'm like no if I stick to what I've said I'm going to do then I should be fine and um yesterday I signed up for a full Ironman so uh doing that, doing that in yeah Bustleton in December so um where's that be, hey Where's Bustleton? WA in Perth, yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, so I sort of felt like, yeah, unfinished business. Um, it'll be a challenge for sure. I'm not trying to win the race. I uh, never, never would have anyway. But just to finish it would be would be a nice little thing. And um, it's gonna bloody hurt. Like I fully, fully recognize that. But I'll, I know that I'll get through it and recover okay and do all that kind of stuff. But I agree. I think we never know what we're truly capable of. Um, and sometimes when you go through adversity, unfortunately, um, you learn what you are capable of, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, whichever way you choose to look at it. But um, we are capable of so much more than what we think. I think we often just put limits in front of ourselves just to say why we can't. Like, I can't feel my leg, therefore I shouldn't do an Ironman. Bullshit. We can do it if we want to like it's just choices that we make and and how we want to show up every day to make that a reality I think is um is the most important thing for sure love that put that message on the fridge ladies and gents um <laughs> before I let you go because I know we're wrapping up here you've got you're a busy lady you've got things to do there's one there's one last question I really want to touch on you spoke really early in your story about how 
it was very challenging for you when you identified solely as an athlete, as a cricketer, to then have something that took cricket away from you, to then reform and re-identify who you are and how you want to show up in the world. I guess now, in a new way, you are Kath Koshal, the founder of the Kindness Factory, and you're on the international speaking circuit. You're a incredibly inspiring and, you know, just amazing individual who gets to sh share your story with people and impact people all around the world. Um, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but you will maybe not want to travel around the world for the rest of your life and be as hectic and as busy as you are. You know, you express your desire to one day have children of your own. And with that is going to come a change and challenge of schedule, right? So how do you feel about the idea that maybe your identity right now won't always be wrapped up in what you are and and I guess maybe do you see your identity being separate to your career? And just explain that idea for us. Yeah, I do. And um, this is something I worked. So when I sort of sought help, professional help through a psych, um, there were lots of different things that I had to overcome. I was sort of diagnosed with PTSD um, as a result of losing Jim, my partner. And there was a whole raft of things that I needed to work through in that regard, but also was one of this I don't even know who I am. Like I, I really couldn't tell you what's interesting about me. And it was probably an esteemed thing because of that loss of identity for sure. So the process of working that out was not being built in my, it's not my career. So I think at the end of the day, who do I want to be? I, I guess it is a little bit wrapped in my career because I want to be not all I want to be known as, but I just want to know who I am and, and who I am is that I'm a kind person. I'm a decent person. Um, I'm full of gratitude. Um, and they're the determining factors that I need to live by and be guided by, not by what pays my bills or what I do for a living and, and, and so forth. So it's more the values that I want to instill within me, whoever crosses my path, et cetera, um, that I need to live by rather than the vehicle of say, I can, I can express that through speaking at the moment in the future that might look completely different. I might contribute in a different way. And so I'm less attached to the idea of what my career is and more attached to who I am as a person and the values that I have as a person. Um, and I think that will always be my guidepost, right? like being a motivational speaker, you know, I'm probably thinking I'm going to go hard at it for the next two, three years and then maybe not even do any more of it um, because I want to transition into yeah potentially being a mom and and being a great partner and and living that kind of life and things like that and that will be completely okay. I'm sure it'll take a transition period, um, but for me the, the the work that I did with my psychologist was more around who I am as a person rather than what my career tells me I should be or who I am. Because um, it's interesting, whenever you go to a barbecue, I'm sure someone comes up to you and if they know you, they say, Brad, how's the podcast going and how's the speaking going? And that will be the interesting thing about you. And if they don't know, they'll go, Brad, what do you do for a living? And you'll say X. And then automatically they'll be creating a concept of who you are without you even telling them who you are because, oh, that's Brad. He's a whatever. Um, and sometimes than... I think not even just them, you start to create that construct in your head. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we even spoke about, you know, a great tip I got as a speaker who sort of become a mentor um, was it's, and, and it's less about being a speaker really for me and, and, and more about the impact as we've discussed. But this person said to me, when you rock up to an event and you're sharing your learnings and your story and your wisdom, that's not an hour's worth of time. That's if there's hundred people in the audience, that's a hundred hours of time. 
And so make sure that that impact is felt and magnified by 100, not by that one hour. And then I realized that, again, it was less about the vehicle of speaking and more about the impacts that we can have um, through sharing the messages that we do. And I think the same can, can be applied to life as well um, in that how we choose to show up for that hour that we have on a podcast, having a coffee with someone, um, with a colleague at work or someone we're mentoring or whatever it is that we're doing, um, that's just as important as well. And again, I think it just always comes back to values um, and knowing what yours are. Like, thankfully for me, I've done a lot of hard work in exploring myself um, and there's no right or wrong value to have like it's completely determined by what you feel and, and who you are as well so yours might be very different to mine and very different to my partners and, and anyone else in your life for that matter but understanding your own values and how you want to show up in the world I think is the most important thing we can do and that is how we should be defined not by the career that we have in my view. So beautifully said well you know, I could literally sit here and speak to you for hours and hours <laughs> on end. And I feel, you know, Likewise. to touch on gratitude, I feel very grateful that I've had the opportunity to hear your story. I feel very grateful that you've chosen my platform to come and speak. And I know that everyone in the audience will say the same thing that um, we're just so privileged to hear you share, to hear those messages that you've learned along the way, along your life journey. And I'm so excited to see what is to come in the future. So, Kath, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I'm going to make sure that everywhere that people can find you in the Kindness Factory is all within the show notes of the show. And I guess I'll give you one last opportunity to give us a little closing message. <laughs> no, nothing from me, Brad, um, apart from just um, it's, it, it's been a real treat to meet you. Um, I think you're a gift to the world and, um, and I really appreciate your time as well. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Kath. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling. And as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week.